Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narrative shaping the future. I'm Rich Gall, you can follow me on Twitter at Rich G Gall and I'm joined as always by my co-host Jennifer Riggins, you can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins and in this week's episode we're talking with digital anthropologist Caitlin McDonald. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about what digital anthropology is, uh, why it matters today, why industry is interested at the moment, how ethnography compares with quantitative research, all of that sort of stuff as well as some of Caitlin's personal projects, so some of her own tech projects and her work as a coach. So yeah, so we cover a lot of ground, but we think you're going to enjoy the chat. But first off, uh, let's introduce Caitlin. Caitlin, how are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Maybe the best place to start is just for you to give yourself an introduction, like to who you are and yeah, what you do as well and a bit of background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a digital anthropologist, as you've said. And uh, the great thing about that is really um, what anthropologists are is just very, very nosy people who like to understand the experiences that people are living through. And, you know, that can be in their private lives, it can be in their work. And really to do that, we want to um, understand them from a very rich level. So typically what we do is we go and hang out with people and we have this fancy word called ethnography, which just means that you go and actually spend time with the people that you're studying so that you get a real experience of what their lives are like. And we usually then, um, that often leads to a book or some kind of other rich publication that you experience um, as a person who's outside of that, whatever that might be. And, you know, it used to be the case that people would go away very remotely from where they were from to do this. But now it's more typical to do it in things like, um, I was recently listening to uh, a, a webinar from someone who was doing an ethnography of Wall Street, for example. So it's a lot more common now to do um, cl- things that are closer to your own culture uh, and to critically examine those as though um, you didn't know what those things were like. Because the reality is that every culture has things that are extremely unique to the way that they work. Uh, And the the richness and variety of human experience extends to ourselves as well as to other people. Uh, And the digital part really just means um, I look at this from the particular lens of how people's digital lives, uh, because we have such an increasingly, you know, it's like we swim in this sea of digital stuff. So you have to incorporate that into all of the perspectives that you're taking around what people's lives and their work is like. So that's really the digital anthropology piece. Even though you added a qualifying adjective at the beginning, it still sounds incredibly broad. Do you have a certain area or topic area around digital anthropology that you work in? Sure. So uh, the two areas I mostly focus on at the moment are um, people's working lives. So I've, I've done a couple of studies on the future of work uh, and how that is going to play out. So obviously extremely relevant to this point in time. So even pre-pandemic, I was doing work on what more distributed ways of working were going to be like and how that was going to change practices and behaviors and habits and ac- actual technology. What are the actual things that we're using to power those interactions, those digitally mediated interactions that we have with each other? And then the other big area that I focus on is digital ethics because I firmly believe that no matter who you are, you have a right to understand the ways that these technologies are impacting your life. Um, And it's a really interesting area to study because of course, not everybody has the technical proficiency to understand the depth of that. But in the same way that, you know, 
you, you as a citizen of, of any country, like you care about the way that the sewage system works, you care about having electricity and things like that. You know, you have, you have some level of say over how those things are governed. And I think that we need the same level of say in our digital lives, even if we don't have the technical proficiency to specifically understand those things. So we need to develop mechanisms for everyone to have a say over those. How should people have a say? There is no digital governing body or should it be the government? Are they our voice? How do people get a say? Mm, yeah, really interesting question. I think there's a few ways that that is currently playing out. So um, I wrote a paper a while back for InfoQ, which is called Data Citizens. And really the concept was, if you think about an analogy with the legal system, you know, so everybody has a right to equal representation under the law, you know, and whether that actually plays out in practice, we can have a long conversation about, but you know, you have, you have a right to be treated fairly. You have a right to be treated the same as any other citizen, but we have specialists who actually draft and craft the law and who um, essentially carry out the way that the justice system works. So nobody's expecting you to go and become a lawyer, but you know, if you have an interaction with the justice system, you know, or, you know, let's say you think that you need to change the law, you perhaps wouldn't do that yourself. You might try and get some lawmakers involved in helping you to do that, for instance, through some kind of citizen assembly or um, petitioning or whatever that might be. And then you have specialists who help you to do that. So my view is that there are two ways that this is analogous. One is directly, you know, actually we can treat this as a legal problem and increasingly it is being treated as a legal problem. And you can see that playing out in Europe to some extent in the UK and also um, in the US, although they have different mechanisms for looking at how to do that. So if you look at Europe, um, there are several new, uh, like the digital market bill, for example, and some new um, draft AI legislation has come out recently, but in the US, it tends to be more around anti-competition law. So it's really the, the FTC, which is taking the biggest role in saying things like we really struggle strongly, strongly advise you not to use dark, dark patterns in design, for instance, or, um, you know, let's, let's just remind everyone that um, discrimination is illegal in general. And if it's happening through uh, automated decision making, it's still illegal. So if you're doing that, then we will come and, you know, speak to you about that. So those are very different legal approaches, but they're both legal things. So there's the actual legal side, but then there's also the role of, um, if you think about kind of a data citizen, as it were, and I'm making hand quotes, which obviously no one can see because this is a podcast, but you know, if you think about the, the analogy of whenever I use a digital system in the same way that as a citizen of a nation, you know, I kind of move around in the system of that nation. Whenever I use a digital system, there are people who have greater expertise in how that system was designed, how it's run, what the, the, what the ways that, you know, the affordances that the system gives me and the limitations limitations that it has and potentially some of the biases that it has. So as a data scientist or a, an engineer who's directly working on these things, I have greater technical expertise and therefore I also have greater responsibility to look at and address these issues. But it's not just about the people who have specialist expertise in those businesses. You know, if you think about it, really when we design and build technical systems, what they're often doing is carrying out the product vision, or um, in the case of something that isn't um, commercialized, the, the vision, the organizational vision for what organization is doing. And so it's not just the engineers who have responsibility for that. It's also the people who are in governance roles, like the CEO, the CIO, the CTO, HR legal. So there's a huge governance aspect of that. Uh, and in fact, Roman Chowdhury talked about this on a podcast that I did with her um, a few months back, where she was saying, even now, when you're talking about governance, you have people who are speaking about technical governance at the model level. You have people who are speaking about governance at the kind of team organizational level, and you also have governance at the societal level. And I think we're at a point now with digital ethics as a field where you're seeing the conversations advancing in all of these areas in different ways, but you have to be aware when you're speaking to people 
which layer they're talking about, because some people are talking very specifically about ways that you, um, in the AI and ML workflow, design tools to overcome biases uh, and to check for fairness. Whereas you have other people who are saying, actually, at an organizational level, are the aims that we're looking at really fair? You know, and actually, if you thought about those aims and in a, in a non-digitized way, you could still examine those. You don't need to be a technical expert to examine those kinds of mechanisms. The difference now is just that they're being carried out through technical means. And then the third piece, of course, is as a society, do we think that the way that these, you know, a business can self-assess, but also you don't necessarily want them to be alone in the assessment, right? So you have the entire legal governance and reputational impact of um, how are people thinking and feeling and behaving around these governance structures and mechanisms as well. Actually, so even, even upstream from sort of people having a say, for example, I'm sort of interested in, well, I suppose to, to sort of have a say, you need to be aware, you need, these things need to be sort of visible to you. And I guess, you know, to a certain extent, especially within technology, a lot of these things aren't visible, both on a sort of yeah. user side, but also even on a sort of a development engineering side, they're not always visible, those sort yeah. of questions. So I'm just sort of interested in kind of how you sort of see your work as kind of making those things more visible and helping people go, okay, well, I can, I can kind of see that, yes, that is a question that needs to be attacked and understood. Yeah, I think there are a couple of different ways of, of thinking about that. One is that when you when you work in any kind of a field, you always have the sense that more people are talking about it that are necessarily true. So if I if I speak to a, a random person on the street, I think to some extent we are raising the level of digital literacy. So people do understand that technology has an impact throughout their lives, you know. But even recently, um, there was a Nesta report that came out just a couple of weeks ago on uh, data poverty in Scotland and Wales. And I think it showed that, um, and because I live in Scotland, um, that, that part was particularly interesting to me. So I think it was up to 16% of people are in a situation where they have what Nesta has defined as data poverty, meaning that they don't have the access that they need to smartphones or, or they don't even know how to get access to those things. They, they might not have the understanding of how to um, even just look for better deals on a smartphone so that they could, you know, and this is for like basic services that they require in their life to either deal with something as a citizen to to access services or to deal with things like school or just things that they want to buy as a consumer, they actually can't do those things. So as you're thinking about increasingly an increasingly digitized state, that has a huge impact on that 16% of people. You know, you, you have to think about how you're going to de deal with that. And I actually think that the, the civil service has some great design standards around this. You know, they, they really are. And in fact, just yesterday, some new services came, design standards came out to say, really think about whether you want this to be an automated decision that a human doesn't look at, or whether it's something that you really need to get some people in a room to talk about and to think about and decide and design. So there's the piece of this, which is around how do individuals understand the risks to themselves as a result of automated systems. And I think about this as being kind of the difference between transparency and explainability. So to me, transparency is when a system has made available all of the technical information about how it works. Whereas explainability is the part where you explain it in a way that no matter who that person is, they can understand what that means to them and into their life. So you might think about it as the difference between a kind of, um, in a medical context, a diagnosis with a lot of technical language and explaining that to a patient in a way that says, here are the kinds of accommodations you might need to make around this or the decisions that you might need to make around this. But the reality, there's so much to think about in the world. You know, all the time we're bombarded by things that we need to make decisions about. So you can't expect everyone to have a full technical understanding of everything, even the level of impact that it has on your life. You know, like I never want to think about where my electricity in my house is coming from. I 
just want to know that it works, right? So you want to have a level of faith and a level of trust that my electricity provider is going to do what it says on the tin. They're going to get me the electricity that I want, that they're not going to do it in a way that's um, unsustainable, that you know I'm not going to suddenly be at risk for the kinds of things that you might be at risk for. So I think there's that level of citizen awareness, which partly has to be overcome, but also you know, as as technical proficiency people, we have to be understanding of the fact that no one's going to come all that way on the journey with you. You know, you can't go out and expect everyone to become a data engineer. You have to be aware of, be mindful of how much information you want them to be technically literate about. And that piece, I think, is the second part, really, is how do we as an industry, and this is the awareness part for people who are working in industry or in policymaking, is at what level do you need people who are acting as advocates to be familiar with these things? So where do you need direct involvement from stakeholders? And where is it that you feel like the decision-making process happens within an organizational context, whether that's commercial or non-commercial? And what are the structures you need to put in place to ensure that you're being fair to all those citizens, no matter how involved they've been? Although, of course, the default is to try and get them more involved, right? So we are a podcast for storytellers by storytellers, and you're the first digital anthropologist or ethnographer we've had on the show. It's intriguing. Like who is funding this research now? Like is our governments now finally showing interest? Are organizations showing interest? Is this a growing job because the need is growing? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I would say that you've always had people who are have similar levels of skills and expertise in businesses and in governments. They're often labeled differently. So a lot of the people who graduate with anthropology backgrounds will go into something like user experience design. You might have people going into service design. You might have policy, people who are working in policy, that kind of thing. So it's about really, I think, finding the the way to translate this language into language that works for the context that you're working in, whether that's business or government or um, third sector. So, And the great thing about anthropologists is that is our entire milieu. That's our existence. That's what we do is we, we learn the ways of working within a culture and the unique specific vocabulary that works in that culture. Uh, and we, we delve into how that relates to other cultures. So as an anthropologist, you should be able to look at a culture and say, aha, they're, they're using these languages to describe the pieces of, of power that I need access to. So I need to describe myself in that language, for example. And I will say, I think that there is a growing emphasis. Um, and you can see that UCL now has an entire program in digital anthropology, for example. And you can see some pieces that I think are related. So we've been talking a lot about digital ethics, and there's a growing number of both academic programs and also private consultancies and think tanks that are kind of emerging around the world to help cope with these issues. So that industry as a sector is growing. But I would say that it's still difficult. You know, the the, the digital anthropologist role is um, perhaps an uncommon one. So technically, my title where I work is senior principal industry strategist. But for anyone that doesn't work in the building with me, or, you know, of course, not literally in the building now, but conceptually, that doesn't mean anything. So digital anthropologist is actually a really nice conversation starter. And as a storyteller, it gives you a route in to say, well, what does this actually mean? And what do you do? And how do you do it? So you mentioned sort of working across uh, like different contexts uh, and I guess part of that is like academic and part of its industry. I was wondering if you could sort of give some kind of examples of where you've sort of had to do that and like how they've sort of varied as well and what sort of differences you've, you've sort of noticed and how that's changed, like how you've approached like a certain project or something. I think there are, um, I'm going to focus on the work around digital ethics again, because I would say um, that's probably the area, you know, not to say that future work doesn't have incredible work being done in academia about it. There absolutely is. But I think for the, the digital ethics piece is probably where I see the most collaborations happening in terms of academia, industry, third sector 
colliding, you know, um, and, and government, of course. So working across those different contexts, I kind of think of it as you have these centers of gravity that operate and some of them operate in quite formal ways. So um, if I were to look at an academic center of research, you know, they might work with private sector at certain points to carry their research out or to try and put some of the findings of their research into practice in industry. But for someone to try and um, like me, who, who mostly has industry background now to try and get access to actually working at that that institution, you'd have to show that you had the, the metrics of success that they use in that institution, which are typically academic papers, which I don't have because I've been working in industry, for example. So you have this kind of dichotomy of, yes, you have more porous boundaries between the sectors, but you also still have the structures of, of power that those sectors are measured by. And in fact, when I was starting my career out, it was really difficult just out of the gate to get a job as a graduate because businesses tend to see new grads with PhDs who are trying to get into industry as, well, they don't have any experience in business. So they're not as valuable to me as an experienced hire, but they're probably more expensive than a new graduate because they've been working, you know, they, they have they have some skills that are there. They're just not business related. So I would say the hardest job to get immediately out of my PhD was the first job because you have to really be convincing around how can I add skills to your business that you don't already have without using the way that they measure success, which is through your experience and your CV. So we, we, you sort of mentioned and we sort of talked about how there's kind of this increasing demand or interest in these issues. Mm. But I also wanted to ask you about kind of in your work as an anthropologist, is there like any sort of resistance and friction? And I guess if you're kind of bringing a sort of critical lens on sort of how organisations do things and how things are built, you're, you're kind of necessarily sort of challenging people. And I was wondering, like, is there resistance and sort of what kind of resistance and how do you deal with it? Well, first of all, there's some great resources as well. So for example, there's a group called Ethnographic Praxis and in Industry. They run an annual conference and they um, they have a membership organization that if you're an anthropologist, it's a really great way of um, helping to bridge the gap between those business skills and the anthropological background that you have. Um, and also, I think to some extent, making that argument for why anthropology is necessary and why uh, doing qualitative research alongside quantitative research is necessary. So I think there is an increasing growth and understanding of the importance of storytelling and also the robustness of ethnographic methods to back that up. So actually spending the time to do the deep research, I think there is a recognition um, in some quarters of why that's important and not trying to shortcut that through, you know, um, doing shallow research, but it is still a conversation that I have to have a lot. So I think that's, that's part of it is convincing people that it's of value to do. But to your point, the second part is how do you establish enough trust with people that they will allow you to challenge them in ways that are going to be productively useful for the outcomes that they're trying to achieve? And I think that just like any kind of critical friend, it's about creating that atmosphere of trust to say, I'm on your side, but you need to be thinking about these issues in different ways. And there are some structure, structural things you can do. So um, for example, you can look at ways that organizations seek external expertise, as well as building internal practices around particular kinds of things that they want to know. So um, if you look at some kinds of organizations might, for example, say, actually, we need real independence of thought on this particular issue. And you might almost think about that as like an, an auditing relationship, right? So you have an organization that's producing some things, you have legislation which says the context in which those things should happen. And then you have auditors who in some instances really take on some of the, the blame or the responsibility for ensuring that that is carried out correctly. Now, that's quite a formal relationship, but you can have similar relationships in terms of external ethics boards, for example, that are, are there to provide a critical capacity, but without the kind of 
ability to really um, set accountability measures, there are some limitations to that. So you're only at, at that point advisory, which is great, you know, because you can provide independent advice, but unless they actually take that advice up, then your the scope of your impact is pretty limited. But internally, you can also build these kinds of relationships as well. So if you're thinking about um, an anthropologist who might be working in a business and they're often in like market research functions or user research functions, that person can be a real advocate for the user or the stakeholder group that they are researching for. And it, I think it's about um, building the rapport with the leadership who can actually get things done to understand that they will have better outcomes if they listen to this piece of critical feedback. And I was speaking with some colleagues the other day, and we were describing this situation where um, actually creative tension is kind of like a tightrope, where both of the sides have to hold their views strongly enough to keep the tightrope up, otherwise it falls down. And what you want is for that to be appropriately tensioned, right? Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, and. I wanted to ask you some, I mean, I, this wasn't initially a question, but you mentioned quantitative research and, and obviously in anthropology, it's more about qualitative and ethnography. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of interested in sort of how you'd work alongside quantitative research. And um, I guess, you know, I suppose sort of over the last decade or so, that sort of big data quantitative has become quite um, well established. And I think mm. for a lot of businesses, that's, it's kind of the norm and it's kind of the more data, the more value. So I'm kind of interested in sort of how you might build upon quantitative, but also where quantitative is sort of maybe a bit of a challenge to what you do, or maybe where people see that as more valuable than sort of ethnography and things. Um, so I also spent many years working as the head of a data team that mostly did quantitative work. And I think, you know, speaking of building trust, one of the ways that you can do that with team members who um, perhaps are skeptical is to show them that you can also do what they do. Uh, and that can be a great way of kind of establishing your credibility with them and then saying, also, here's this other thing that I do that I know that you don't have a background in. So now that you trust me, let's use some of these things as well. So that's quite useful. The second piece I would say, so uh, a resource I would highly, highly recommend is um, Trisha Wang, who's done some excellent work on what she calls um, why big data needs thick data meaning those kind of rich interactions that are not captured in a, and assessed in a quantitative framework, but that are more descriptive. And that you need both of these because quantitative data can do some wonderful things, but it often misses the small, tiny signals of what might happen in the future. You know, you can, you can easily measure the past. You can say what happened. What's much harder to do, even with systems that are predictive in nature, you have to depend on them to capture the right information to predict the thing. And that requires the information that you're capturing to stay the same. And the fact is that those categories themselves change over time. So you have to find the right categories and, you know, I would say you can only do that through ethnography. Other people might not say that. But that I think is, is part of the key there is learning to work effectively with your quantitative colleagues in a way that emphasizes the value of both disciplines and when you need to use which piece of that information. Um, I would also say there, I would suggest there is perhaps a growing skepticism of quantitative analysis for providing the level of insight that it requires to do the analysis. You know, data engineers are very expensive. Data scientists are very expensive. And if you're not seeing a huge uplift in your product's success rates or um, your advertising success rates, then you're going to start questioning, well, why don't we just go back to the old way where we spend a set amount of money and we don't actually attribute the success. We just know that it's happening somehow. So that I think is, is part of the 
the shifting skepticism of and, and also, you know, increasingly people are opting out of web trackers, for example. So you have this world where you previously had all this very cheap data to play with, and now that's less true than it was. And I, I think this is particularly true in the context of, of social media or social applications. You know, if you're talking about data analysis for cancer detection, obviously, please send all the data scientists there. We want our quantitative analysis friends on those things. But the qualitative piece comes in when you're thinking about the quality of patient care, for example, or patient outcomes. There was a great ethnographic study, and I think it was Red Consultancy had done this piece of work on people who have to wear, oh, I've forgotten the name of the things, um, uh, colostomy bags, right? So post-surgery, some people have to wear colostomy bags. And they did this piece of ethnographic research on how that was impacting their lives. And what they found was um, over time, the company was getting fewer complaints. But the reason for that wasn't because people were more satisfied with their colostomy bags. It was because people were going out less. They were they were retreating from their daily lives because they were finding that the colostomy bags were failing and they didn't feel like it was being addressed. So only by actually entering into those lives around something that's quite perhaps shameful or embarrassing to deal with, were they able to get at those questions and by building that trust with those people, were they able to get answers to some of those questions that they wouldn't have seen through the quantitative data? You know, the data was telling them the complaints are going down, but the reality of the experience was that it was getting worse. It's very interesting how everything comes together. And obviously we have the, we drank the Kool-Aid, we see the shadows, whatever, like we understand this growing need. It'll be interesting to see if digital anthropologists or just ethics experts are going to start working for like the big four if like a Deloitte or Accenture. So it's very interesting. And I guess that only happened if more things happen, like what happened with Volkswagen and like actual developers went to jail for the emissions mm-hmm. scandals, things like that. So we'll have to see. We haven't seen any, that, that was an example and that's getting a bit old, that example. So mm-hmm. we haven't seen a lot of examples around that yet. But then um, the one that comes to mind right now, just for those listening, we're recording this on May 14th. 2021. And I've been super fascinated by the Facebook oversight board, which is like their Supreme Court that they're kind of outsourcing their ethical decision making to. There's a lot of things happening in this area. And I'd love to know more about what your day to day job is. Can you tell us about Leading Edge Forum? How does that transition into? Yeah, how is it still seems like super cool work, but it's interesting that it's a job too, if that makes sense. And I'm curious what kinds of companies are valuing this type of research already versus the ones that will have to value to survive in a couple of years. Well, let me approach that from um, from two texts. The first is the question about how the industry is shifting overall. So you mentioned, are the big four going to have ethics consultancies? Um, the answer is some of them already do have that, in fact. So Deloitte being one of them, they, they have a, a, a role in this. Um, some Sometimes this language is couched around privacy, for example, but increasingly they have um, ethics um, components as well, um, explicitly so. Uh, and I think some of the thing that coalesces that is as the legal landscape evolves, Large consultancies like that or, or, or auditing firms like that will adjust their services and offerings to mirror those things. So you might see a, a landscape fairly soon, you know, as, as the law kind of coalesces around these things, you might see a landscape fairly soon where um, there are more and more consultancy offerings around this space and, and auditing offerings around the space. Uh, and we like to draw the analogy with cybersecurity. You know, for a long time, there wasn't a lot of 
legal clarity about this as a role, but now it's a clear discipline and everyone knows what it is. So I think ethics is kind of going the same way. At the moment, it's there's a lot of great ideas floating around and there are plenty of frameworks. What we haven't developed is a clear set of standards and or um, legal requirements that people need to follow. And when those emerge, you will then have a much clearer set of roles, responsibilities and jobs and a kind of discipline of what this area of work is. So I see that kind of coming on the horizon in the next couple of years, I would say. In terms of our work, so the Leading Edge Forum is a small but mighty consultancy that focuses on um, technological preparedness for large businesses. So um, we work across a range of subjects. Um, We're also a a subsidiary of DXC Technology. So um, we work with our uh, technology firm internally as well. We try and steer them towards what we think is the right strategic direction. And we work with clients all over the world, lots of Fortune 250 companies that we work with, um, and as well as government departments in several different nations. And really what they want from us is a perspective that they don't think that they can get from elsewhere. So sometimes that's combining pieces of information that we're seeing emerging from, you know, we talked about the the interdisciplinary nature of the work. So what do you see happening emerging in the legal sphere? What do you see happening emerging in academia, in the third sector, et cetera, that you can take into businesses that perhaps haven't thought about things in that way before? So it's really about kind of pushing the envelope of their thinking towards not just what is what is now, what are the requirements now, but what is it going to look like in a few years time so that you can get ahead of that uh, and ensure that you're not only reacting to what's happening, but also anticipating what's happening. You mentioned uh, the sort of the evolution of this kind of field and how it's sort of starting to become a little bit more formalized and how over time there will be hopefully some like frameworks and more even like legislation, like you say. But I guess the interesting question for me that, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's quite hard to resolve in my mind is, is sort of how do you, is I, I kind of wonder if the more it becomes formalized, the more it becomes more of a kind of checklist and a sort of way of, yeah, I, I kind of wonder if there's always that tension between formalizing it. So it becomes just that kind of check checkbox type exercise and one where it always is always kind of challenging and sort of actually having that sort of properly kind of critical angle, I guess, like how do you kind of get that balance right, I suppose? I think when you think about digital ethics, I mean, and that's a broader question around how do you manage ethics in a field that evolves so rapidly, you know, and of course we're talking about technology, but you know, there are other fields that also have rapid evolution as well. So my view is that legislation is always going to be a kind of lagging not indicator, but a a, a lagging, it's always trying to catch up. So you still need frameworks that people can use no matter where they are in the innovation cycle. And there are plenty of frameworks that happen right up front before you even thought about your design or your, your product, when you just have the idea about how, what is this actually going to impact in people's lives, you know, and, and what's the scale and the scope of the impact. So in essence, you have the situation, um, and we, we kind of outlined this in a paper I wrote a couple of years ago, where when the impact is small, because the product or service that you're designing is only available to a few users, or it's very early stage, that doesn't mean that you're free from thinking about ethics. It just means you use different tools at that time. So you have a lot of kind of speculative design tools that you can use. There are a ton of um, frameworks out there that you can think about using at that time. And then you kind of move along this phase of technological maturity, your product grows, it flourishes, it becomes so ubiquitous that it's in everybody's house. And at that point, that's where legislation probably comes into play because you'll find that it's having such an impact that you need those really heavily regulated frameworks around it. You know, And similarly, you can look at heavily regulated industries like, like medicine, I've already mentioned energy. You can think about other kinds of utilities where you have lots and lots of structure around how those industries are allowed to operate. And that's how I think the kind of 
the the evolution goes. It goes from a place where there might not be legislation, but you still have lots of tools available to you to think about the impact that that service is going to have. And then those tools become more formalized as your service or product scales to a larger, reach a larger group of people and have bigger impacts. Cool. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I wanted to sort of dive a bit deeper into like ethics. And and, and to be honest, you've sort of covered some of those issues. But uh, I just wanted a sense of like, what do you think? I mean, there's still a long way to go, like you say, I'm sort of interested in like, what what do you think people find hard to understand? And like, how, how do you sort of work to help them do it? Mm. One of the things that I'm thinking a lot about right now is the difference between the emergent toolkits that are part of an actual engineer or developer workflow and um, the understanding that you need if you are working in the industry, but perhaps not on that technical product level, or also if you're just a kind of general user of technology, you need to have some understanding of what the risks are to you. And I think that those three aspects have very different concerns around what you need to know in those roles. And, And they are also interrelated in the sense that often ML engineers will ask me about those technical things. And I'm like, well, yes, that's important. But we, even before that step, you need to make sure that those workflow tools themselves have thought about some of these broader considerations, you know, because if this becomes a kind of invisible part of the ML workflow, and it just is a natural thing, as natural as booting up your, your IDE and, you know, downloading some um, open source packages, you probably don't think about the dependencies there as much as you, you might want to. Um, but the reality is that those parts of the workflow then become parts of the risks that either the organization has to absorb or that people have to think about when they're using your product. So unless they know what you're using, you know, or like I say, you don't want people to feel overwhelmed by the amount of technical information they have to consume. They don't have to know what it is, but they do have to trust that it works. So you still have to have some kind of level of oversight as those tools become more seamlessly integrated. And I think that there's a kind of um, emergent question or concern that I have around the the bifurcation of the field in that way around the tooling side versus the conceptual side. Yeah, that that that's a good point. And and I just it is quite an interesting just for all of technology, I think. I think the more frictionless and embedded technologies have become in in our lives it almost feels like there's this kind of uncanny like return of all these epistemological questions about mm-hmm. how we know how something works and who who decides how something works um yeah and it feels like those are just kind of re-emerging really yeah well and there's a flip side to that as well which is that um increasingly low or no code solutions you know and i know that's been like the great the great hope for many years and we're not saying that engineers are all going to disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow. Don't worry, engineers, we, we still love you. But there is an increasing um, kind of ability to say, oh, there are these easy to access machine learning tools that anybody can go and use and you can go and play with them or use them for your own projects or you know, try and start your own product based on these tools as, a, as an initial one-off and then you know, perhaps get more robust engineering support later on. But unless you know the limitations of those things, and I'm thinking specifically about some of the um, machine learning vision use cases where um, the training sets may have been biased or um, often speech to te- you know um, speech recognition software, things like that, or even just the free tools that people have available to them, you need to understand some of the potential ethical risks of the training sets that were used to make those tools, what biases you might run into, where you run into sticky situations when you're combining data sets that don't naturally go together or that might throw up potential errors. Like all of that stuff for people who are not practitioners in the space, but who have increasing access to tools that they can use to, to do these things. It's the same. It's almost like you're you're back to the beginning with developers just starting to get their heads around the stuff and having to learn that all all over again for people who are not developers either. 
And even from a, when you're talking about companies that are as huge as F250, like everything we're using is so distributed. Mm -hmm. No one company could have what everyone is using at this. It's not a giant Oracle contract or Microsoft contract anymore. It's with, there's a lot more decision-making for the developers, but then that comes great, great power comes responsibility, Mm -hmm. et cetera. It's just very interesting how these things move. Can you think of an example of an organization that is actually being transparent about their ethical choices and specifically I, I don't the locked box of AI, they're not keeping it locked. And mm-hmm. it's open source then the idea because we need to know more about the data that's going into training these models now. Is anyone doing it right? I think there are several examples of places that are trying to do it right. So if I think about something like the Salesforce Ethical and Humane Use Policy Office, for instance, which is perhaps more related to their decisions as a company than it is CAI specifically, but you can see right from the get-go exactly what they're trying to achieve through that office. Um, I know that, let's see, who else is doing good stuff? Twitter, of course, has been hiring some amazing people in this space as well, and they've been thinking carefully about curating the um, the Twitter feed more more closely. Uh, and you've got um, Cisco Systems has got a new, uh, not new, but they, they have an office of um, ethics and human rights, which looks at the way that technology is designed in that company as well. And they base that on the UN um, business and human rights principles, um, which is quite a good way of doing that. Um, Microsoft has always been a lead in inclusive design, um, and they've done great work around that. And they also, um, their design team, uh, shout out to them, they've designed this great little um, card game that you play. Um, and I think, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I will try and remember it before the end of the podcast um, or sneakily do a Google while we're talking. Um, but they have this little kind of game that you play around moral hazards, which is quite a good way of, of getting people involved in a fairly low stakes situation. So you kind of make it accessible without it being the real technology, but you get people thinking about how to do it right. Cool. That's, that sounds good. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and dig that out. So I wanted to change tact a little bit and talk a little bit about sort of your work in terms of like coaching and career, because I know it's you... It's called Judgment Call. Ah, okay. That's Thank the name of the much. Microsoft game. It's called Judgment Call. Okay, you can cool, down- they yeah. have op- They've open sourced the card, so you can go and download them for free. Cool. We'll, we'll link to that in the notes. Yeah, so coaching, I know you, you, you sort of do coaching. I was wondering, like, how did you get into that? Like, what, what sort of pulled you in that direction, I suppose? Yeah. Um, first of all, even if you don't want to become a professional coach, coaching training has been one of the most valuable things I have done in my life. It's it's fantastically interesting to think about people's psychology, to think about your own psychology. Uh, and I think there's just that kind of element of, interestingly in coaching, helping is potentially a word that is is bad because what you want to do is empower other people to be able to do what they need to do. You know, So you're, you're never trying to rescue someone from their situation. You're trying to enable them to have a space where they can see the full power that they have and to create their own choices for themselves. So interestingly, it it can often sound like you're doing nothing as a coach. And to some extent, that's true because you're not committing to doing the actions. You're trying to create a space where someone else can kind of pull out all the pieces and explore them and then figure out what their options are and what they're really willing to commit to, to make change in their lives. And there's just been a lot of really useful stuff around the way that people communicate, um, the different kinds of states people can be in psychologically, um, how you navigate difficult conversations, thinking about power in conversations, um, thinking about what you're asking of other people in conversations and how you yourself are asking for different things or what kinds of um, relative status you're you're thinking about yourself as being in and how you can get back to that full sense of self when you're being in a, in a, in a state that's perhaps counterproductive for yourself. Really, really useful toolkit for anybody to use and explore, I think. 
Does that kind of give you a sort of an additional perspective that informs what you do as an anthropologist, just kind of being able to listen to people and like get them to talk about what they're finding hard, what they struggle with at work, maybe? Does that kind of give you that perspective? So as an anthropologist, what I have is an, an additional ability to listen for the cultural signals in the stories that people are telling when they come to me as a coach. When I'm being a coach, I don't tend to think of myself as being an anthropologist. I'm being a kind of neutral, reflective body, as it were, which doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of self. But what you're, what you're really doing in a coaching conversation is allowing the other person to listen to their own thoughts. You're not having a social conversation. It's a very kind of specific style of conversation that you use to move somebody forward towards a goal that they they set and that they have. So you you always have your full resources that you bring into the conversation, but it's not about your agenda in that, in that scenario. So I always think of the coach self as being kind of quite distinct from the rest of, you know, I leave some of my social hats at the door in that, in that scenario. And kind of related to that, and I'm not sure if this is kind of a clear question, but like, how do you sort of get the balance between, so you talk about like empowering individuals, but then how do you kind of allow for, you know, systemic issues that maybe aren't within their control? Like, how do you kind of manage those things together, really? How do you sort of empower someone in a way that doesn't individualize, I guess, problems and sort of mm. lead to that, that kind of liberal sense of an individual's responsibility to sort of own their own problems? Like, how do you kind of get that yeah. balance, I guess? Well, it's a great question because I think coaching acknowledges that there are systemic challenges in life, but the role of a coach is to explore things from that individual perspective and framework. So that isn't to say that coaching isn't aware of systemic issues that might be at play. The role of the coach, though, is to say the only behavior that you have power over is your own. And that might include trying to challenge broader power structures in society, but there are other options that you might have, like withdrawing from a situation or um, uh, approaching a conversation differently, et cetera. So, you know, it isn't to say that coaching is not aware of the fact that there are systemic challenges, but it really is quite an individualistically focused conversation. And there are some coaches that do team coaching, but I tend to focus on one-on-one. Just sort of as we kind of come towards the sort of last part of the episode, I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about some of your personal tech projects I've seen on your website. So I'm kind of interested in like how they inform your work, if they do at all, and like, yeah, what sort of role do they play, I guess, in sort of your your professional life? So I think I use my creative projects to inform my work in two big ways. One is a reminder that technology can be playful because we often forget and we're so focused on these big scary themes about, you know, autonomous weapons and AI and and judiciary sentencing and quite, you know, quite frightening things or um, public manipulation, all of that stuff is really scary. And I think we have to remember that technology can also be a vehicle for joy and exploration and experimentation in ways that are rewarding and productive. And maybe not even productive, rewarding in ways that don't necessarily have to be viewed through the lens of productivity, let's say. So it's important for me to reconnect with technology in that way periodically to remind myself that that's the case. And I think the second thing is um, it's a good way of reconnecting with technical skills in a low stakes way. So, you know, none of these things are related to my day job in the sense that no one's using these products apart from me, right? So they're they're quite fun to, to do. And they're quite fun to explore new frameworks with or um, to get my hands on coding again, because I don't really do that as part of my day job. So it's n- it's a nice way to reconnect with some of those skills and to really kind of reground yourself in well, how does this stuff actually work? You know, because it can be so easy to forget how it works when mostly what you're doing is working in PowerPoint. You want to get your hands on something that isn't PowerPoint again. 
do you think coding is important to your work, even though you're not doing it in your work? Do you think storytellers in general, as Rich and I, neither of us, I think have coded in our lives. I'm a bit afraid of it. In fact, um, math phobic, but do you think that's important both to create empathy for your probably not the greatest word, but subjects of your anthropological research or also in building trust yeah. Um, so first of all, I like to use the word participants rather than subjects, which is quite a nice reframing of that because yeah. they're, they're often co-creating the research with you. I never want to tell anyone that they have to become a coder because I feel like that's quite prescriptive. But I think for someone who also was for many years afraid of math, and that's why I took up anthropology, so I wouldn't have to do it, and then ended up with a data career, so I did have to do it. Um, <laughs> it can be a, a nice way of, de- you know, doing it from a creative perspective can be a really nice way of demystifying some of those concepts. So um, it can be really, you know, and when you think about the projects I've done, one of them was an arts project with a piece of fabric and um, programming some LEDs to light up in different ways as, a, as part of a dance costume. So it's connecting with two other areas of expertise of mine. So it's kind of just blending that in. Um, Another one was about creating useful conversations that you could have and and supporting people through those. So that part, of course, as an anthropologist, you're always wanting to hear people talk about what their lives are like. So again, it's like finding those parts of yourself that are most exciting to you and then thinking, well, is there a way I could look at this from a technological lens and what, what might that be? So, you know, I think if it's something that you feel like you're tech adjacent and you want to have a greater sense of um, connectedness to the creator side of it, it can be a great way to do that. But do I think people have to do it? No, I don't think people have to do it. I think it's it's rewarding if you want to give it a try, you know, and you might find that you actually really are having some fun out of it. And there's a couple of projects that are not on the website yet because I'm still working on them. So one of them is uh, throughout the last lockdown period, I took I went out for walks every day and I took some photographs of what I was doing. And then I trained a neural net to create new images based on those photos. And they're quite weird looking and funky. Uh, and a real uh, vision scientist would be like, well, but this is not creating anything realistic. So therefore, you know, probably I don't think it has value because what we're trying to do is grounded in realism. Whereas I'm trying to challenge the paradigm of images that are realistic in nature. And then the other one is I want to explore some gaming software for creating physical environments to build some, I'm not very good at drawing, but I wonder if I could use the tools of, of this gaming environment stuff to try and create some some pictures that I can see in my head, but I can't draw. So I think there's that that sense of kind of unlocking creative possibility through technology in ways that um, are inaccessible through other means, which is really what creativity is all about. I, it's very interesting because NFTs aside, the idea that you could then create art instead of mm-hmm. trying to go for realistic, you could turn nature into art in a new medium. So it sounds actually mm-hmm. really, I'm excited to see it. I don't want to say it's beautiful because I've not seen it and that's subjective anyway, but I'm excited to see it. What else is exciting you over the next 12 months? What are you looking forward to? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, for people who do want to see the art, actually, um, there are some on a pinned tweet in my profile. So you can actually go and have a look at it. Um, there's a, there's an additional piece that I want to bring to this, which involves some writing as well. So that's the reason I haven't put it on the website yet. So uh, what am I looking forward to over the next 12 months? I am, I'm really looking forward to partly to those projects. But the other thing I think professionally that I'm looking forward to is the consolidation of some of these efforts. So we've talked a lot about, um, in particular, the, the, the digital ethics space. There is a lot that's exciting that's going on right now. And I think that for it to become a real kind of powerful um, betterment for the lives of people, which I think is really what the digital ethics space is all about, you need some new mechanisms for embedding this in kind of organizational practice in technology workflows and in kind of societal governance mechanisms. And I think that over the next 12 to 18 months, some of those mechanisms are going to really start to coalesce clearly. And that will be another kind of acceleration of the field, which I'm quite excited about. 
Cool. And just one more question, really, that I didn't list, but sort of for anyone interested and mainly just for my sort of curiosity, for anyone interested in sort of just finding out about digital anthropology or like reading things like, could you recommend some people or some particular books that you think are a good sort of starting point, I guess, for exploring what's happening in this field? Absolutely. So uh, I already mentioned Trisha Wang, who I think is fantastically um, up to date in terms of what is the relationship between quantitative and qualitative data in a way that brings the most power to organizations. Um, I also really like Tom Bolstorff, who did a lot of fieldwork on the digital world's second life, and he's probably the most advanced scholar in the field in terms of virtual world experiences, immersive experiences, and ethnography in, in digital worlds. And I think in terms of digital anthropology more generally, UCL now has an entire program of study on that, which, uh, and they release, um, they have a MOOC that they have out there, which is available to anyone. So they can go look at that. And they have a wonderful series of events that they run as well, which is definitely worthwhile checking out also. Cool. Yeah, that's pretty much all of our questions, I think. So yeah, thanks for joining us. But before you go, it'd be good just to give you the chance to let people know where they can find you online, where they can find you on Twitter, all of those sorts of things. Absolutely. So you can find me at caitlinmcdonald.com and my Twitter is cmcdphd. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. It's been really interesting. We've learned a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So that's just about it for this week's episode. Thank you to Caitlin for joining us. It was a real pleasure to speak to her. We learned a lot. Really good to have an in-depth conversation about digital anthropology. And yeah, it's something I'm definitely going to explore more in depth. As I said, I was personally quite curious about it. And I hope uh, your curiosity has been piqued as well. All that's left is to say thank you as well for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. Remember, there are lots of older, earlier episodes on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore talkabouttech. As I said at the start, my Twitter is at Rich G. Gould and Jennifer's is at JK Riggins. But yeah, thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.